Hello, and welcome to Where the Rubber Meets the Road podcast. I'm Greg DeRocher, co-founder and CEO of Safe Ride for Kids since 2012. Prior to that, I was a firefighter paramedic, and that was about 18 years of my previous career. And since 2000, I've been a certified child passenger safety technician, helping parents keep their kids safe in the car through education, sharing education and information with them about the proper use of their car seat and the systems in their car. And I am Amy DeRocher, co-founder of Safe Ride for Kids and also the creative director there. I've been a certified child passenger safety technician since 2004. And as that, um, in that role, I worked at a hospital helping teach new parents how to put in their car seats and keep their children safe. I'm also a mother of three, and I've written most of our blogs and information about um, sharing with parents how to properly install and use their car seats and keep their children safe. Awesome. Today we're talking about uh, crash dynamics, which is kind of the the underlying um, reason for all of this uh, focus on safety in the car, restraint systems, children in car seats. It all revolves around the crash dynamics of um, being involved in the car and what types of crashes we experience and which ones are most likely and all that kind of fun stuff. So we're going to be talking laws of physics today. And um, I think we'll just jump right in with, um, you know, the, the four... Well, there's, <clears throat> there's really three crashes that occur every time a, a, there's an impact. So if, if we're driving down the road, we, our vehicle's moving at, you know, 60 miles an hour. We, the occupants, are moving at 60 miles an hour. And all of our organs inside of us are moving at 60 miles an hour. When there is a sudden change in speed, you know, let's say we... Hitting a tree. You hit a tree, right? Uh, the vehicle, the car, is going to decelerate at a very uh, rapid rate. But the occupants of the vehicle, all of the contents of the vehicle, are going to continue moving forward at 60 miles an hour until they're acted on by an outside force. Hopefully a seatbelt or a restraint system of some sort. And sometimes... The supplement to that would be the airbag is going to be a secondary restraint that we run into. Um, th- what, the part that most people don't think about is actually the third crash. And the third crash is all the organs inside your body also that we're traveling at 60 miles per hour also have to hit something, come into contact with something to stop and decelerate. So that is the third crash is everything inside your body moving around. And that's, you know, obviously there's a lot of internal injuries that are the result of that third impact. Um, So one of the things that we're going to do as, uh, you know, that we're going to talk to parents about is uh, we get, we have to make the decision before we get in the crash. What is it that we're going to uh, impact? What is it that's going to be restraining us? Uh, is it going to be, you know, 
in the case of an unrestrained occupant, is it going to be the windshield or the dash? Is it going to be flying through the windshield and impacting the tree itself? Like there's a lot of choices that we have to make leading up to the moment of impact. But once the crash occurs, uh, we're going to experience the result of our choices that were made before that. Um, you know, as a, as a child passenger safety technician, and it really actually started before I became doing the car sheet stuff, uh, I realized it became obvious to me that parent or that children are the innocent victims of their parents' choices. Um, and when we're talking crash dynamics, sometimes those are, uh, there's some very negative impacts on the children from those choices. Uh, but, you know, no kid, no child chooses to be improperly restrained. No child chooses, Yeah, you know, they might not like it and they might, you know, fight back a little bit. But ultimately, you know, they don't understand the consequences of, of not being properly restrained, ultimately. So, you know, what, type, what kinds of injuries should we expect to see you know, from the different types of crashes, um, you know, each one of these crashes, the, the vehicle, the occupant into the restraining, you know, into the vehicle or the restraint system, and then the internal organs into the, into the bony structures of the body. Um, those occur every time there's an impact. So let's look at a different type of crash. Let's look at a rollover crash, for example where the vehicle is impacting the ground multiple times. You know, first on the, the front end of the car, and then the back end of the car, and then the roof, and then the side of the car. Like, each one of those three crashes occurs every time there's an impact. So, generally speaking, what are the most, what are the different types of crashes that we might see uh, or that what we might experience well the most common crash is a frontal crash and that means that you're driving along the road and hit something or something's coming driving at you and but anyway you're moving forward and hit something um, another crash is a side impact crash less common than a frontal crash um, but more dangerous and then there's the rollover crash too so, you know, when we're talking rollover, like Amy just said, um, there's multiple points of impact. Uh, another couple of types of crashes that we might experience would be a rear end crash. So if somebody, is, you know, we're sitting at a stoplight and somebody runs up behind us and runs into us, they're experiencing a frontal crash and our vehicle and the occupants are experiencing a rear end crash. And then there's another one that a lot of people don't really think about, but it's actually like a change of direction or a spin, a rotation, um, which can result in, you know, spinning out on an icy road or you know, hydroplaning or even, you know, going through an intersection, let's say, and it's a, uh, not exactly a T-bone, but a, kind of a glancing blow in a corner could cause a vehicle to spin out. In, the, in an intersection. And each one of these vehicles, or each one of these types of crashes, the internal organs, the occupants, are going to experience different kinds of injuries. 
So, you know, if we think about from a frontal impact, all of the restraining systems in the car were first designed with the frontal impact in mind. So the seatbelt, the uh, frontal airbags, the crumple zones in the front of the car, all of these things were built in with that most common type of crash in mind. Um, when we're, when, so then, you know, the, the, when we think about side impacts, a true T-bone, if you will, or a rollover where the side of the vehicle's impacted, we're going to, we're talking about, you know, the side curtain airbags are there to keep the occupant's head from going through the window or contacting the, you know, whatever's on the outside of the car on that side at that, at the point of the impact and to help. So, and help spread the crash forces around. So when we think about, um, restraining force, how do we talk to parents about that as a car seat technician? How do, what do we do? How do we explain restraining force to parents? Um, well, we use, a easy to remember, um, equation and that's weight times speed equals the amount of rate straining force that you that's required to hold a, an occupant so say a child is 10 pounds and you're going 30 miles per hour then it's 10 times 30 equals 300 um, pounds, pounds of force that that's needed to restrain that child so that's actually a, a, quite a lot and then you know you imagine that it's an older person, 100 pounds, just to make the math easy, 30 miles per hour, that's now 3,000 pounds of force that uh, is, is required to keep you in your seat. And that's the energy that's going to be, you know, transferred to your, your body as your body's thrown into the seatbelt or whatever the, the restraining, whatever's doing the restraining. Um, I think one of the places that this becomes really relevant is uh, parents that end up traveling, say by taxi or ride share, things of that nature, where you know the law, the legal law, the state law, may not require that a child be restrained, and oftentimes um, parents will opt to just carry their child on the lap thinking, oh, we're just going in town. We're not going to be on the highway. We're not going to be at high speeds. Um, we're just going to be, you know, crossing town light to light to light. <laughs> and let's say they have a 20, 30 pound child sitting on their lap and they're like, oh, I can hold that. That's, you know, I can obviously do the child doesn't fit in the seatbelt and I don't want to carry the car seat. So I'll just put them on my lap. I'll just put them on my lap and carry them. Buckle us together. <laughs> so the when we start thinking about this math, a 20-pound child in a 20-mile-an-hour crash is going to require 400 pounds of restraining force. I don't know about you, but even when I was in my best shape, <laughs> I could not hold 400 pounds, right? And the other thing is reaction time. You know, the reaction times in a car crash are fractions of a second, hundredths of a second. Uh, 
and just our nervous system as a human being, we can't respond that quickly. Well, and think about it too. If you're buckled in with the child, I mean, that's just holding a child on your lap if you're buckled in, but if you're buckled in with the child, that child is between you and what's going to stop you. So you're 150 pounds going 20 miles per hour in a crash. That's a lot of force being applied between. 3,000 pounds of force that's pushing the child between you and the seatbelt. Yeah, that's not going to go well for the child. So, you know, the point of this conversation is to help our audience understand the laws of physics that we're talking about here. Now, obviously, this speed times weight formula is a very loose uh, formula. Uh, So it's just, it's a simple formula that gets the point across. It's not the exact uh, engineering restraining force calculation, but the ideas are there. Um, So now that we understand that there are three different type, three different collisions that occur. There's the vehicle into an obstacle. There's the occupant into the vehicle or the restraint system. And then thirdly, our internal organs into our insides, the inside of our skull, the heart into the rib cage, our liver into the rib cage. Now, like whatever those internal organs are going to be uh, running into, we understand how much force is involved. The next thing that we need to think about is, okay, how, what are, what are we trying to achieve with the restraint systems, right? Right. I think um, let's just briefly go into what happens when you're not restrained. Okay. Um, so when you're not restrained and you're in a crash, obviously the seatbelt's not holding you in your seat. So the first thing you do is, well, there's usually two motions. You either go down and under, which means um, you're kind of breaking and you slide down your seat and go under the dashboard, which often breaks your legs, um, affects your hips, could break your hips, dislocate it, um, and fracture your femur. The other motion that's very common is you go up and over. So you actually come up out of your seat and then through the windshield, you hit the steering wheel, go through the windshield or hit the windshield. Um, neither of these are very fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so imagine that there's someone unrestrained in the back seat. So again, no seatbelt holding them in. This person is going up and over, up and over what? Up and over the front seat and hitting the driver or hitting the passenger mm-hmm. or going out the windshield. And so an unrestrained passenger is not only danger to it's that person, it's also a danger to every other passenger in the car. Um, side impact, if you're unrestrained, you're getting thrown to the side. You're getting thrown to the side of the impact first. And then in rebound action, you'll get thrown back to the other side. So you're kind of being a pinball. Yeah. yeah. Uh, rollover crash is even more of a pinball. You're getting tumbled, uh, almost like a washing machine. Yeah. Um, hitting everything in the car, hitting everyone in the car and possibly coming out of the car. Now it's a, um, the statistic is that 75% of passengers who are ejected are killed. So that's really not good. You don't want to be ejected. You want to stay in the car. You definitely want to stay in the car inside the passenger compartment. Um, 
getting ejected, you know, obviously there are those 75% who get ejected that are, are fatally injured. Um, it's a really bad day for them. <laughs> Their bodies are um, obviously uh, ex- receive extreme injuries and it's, um, you know, unsurvivable. So staying inside the passenger compartment definitely is the preferred uh, outcome. And then uh, something else that Amy was talking about just slipped my mind. Um, oh, the unrestrained occupant impacting other occupants. Um, I know it's common in taxis and ride shares for people to ride in the back and not buckle up. Um, there was a period of time where I was actually doing Uber driving. Um, and I would always ask my, um, riders to buckle up because I understood that if I was in a crash, whether it was my fault or not, those people in the back were a threat to me as the driver, not only to themselves, but to me. So I want every occupant in the car to be buckled all the time uh, for their protection and mine. So if you, if you're somebody who rides in a ride share um, or a taxi or whatever, uh, I think it would be, it behoove you to use your seatbelt all the time and make sure the kids are buckled up as well. So there's a few things that are kind of a, a list, a priority list. Um, and Amy alluded to it with the ejection statistic of 75% of people who are ejected out of the car during a crash uh, don't survive. So the number one objective of all restraint systems, whether we are talking children's car seats or the seatbelt for us, the number one objective is to keep the occupants inside the occupant or inside the passenger compartment. The second thing that we're trying to accomplish is to contact the strongest points of the body. Like we don't want, um, and this was the downside of, of lap only seatbelts. We don't want to be restraining somebody by the soft abdominal organs, let's say, right? Or the soft tissue of the neck. We want the restraining system to be contacting the strongest, uh, the bony structure of the body. So if you think about a three point seatbelt, your lap and shoulder seatbelt system, You've got the shoulder belt crossing across your shoulder, your, your rib cage, and then on your hips, uh, that lap belt should be sitting on the tops of your thighs near your hip bones, uh, and the pelvis is that bony structure that the lap portion of the seatbelt is meant to engage. If you think about a, a car seat with the five-point harness for kids, you've got two straps from shoulders down the rib cage down to both hip bones. Um, So that's the point of contacting the strongest points of the body. And then if you think about it, the third thing that we're trying to accomplish is to spread that crash force out over as much surface area as we can. And I think, you know, when I teach the car seat class, the idea of, of talking about 
focused energy is very different from spread out energy. Like you and I can walk out and stand outside on a bright sunny day and not get burned, like not actually burst into flames, right? (laughs) But if you get a small magnifying glass and focus just a few inches, you know, say a three inch diameter magnifying glass, and you're able to focus just three inches of surface area onto a single point, you will very shortly have, you know, smoke and fire. So that's the difference between spread out energy and focused energy. So the seatbelt system, you know, when we're trying to restrain one, two, three, four thousand pounds of force, depending on the occupant and the speed, we want that energy spread out as much of the surface area of the body as we can, which is why the vehicle seatbelts are as wide as they are, because they're going to spread that restraining force out over a wider surface area of the body, thereby reducing the injury that any one part of the body is going to experience. You know, it's, it's common to have a broken collarbone or clavicle from the seatbelt. And that's because it's just a bony structure that's kind of sitting out there and gets uh, pushed on by the seatbelt. So it's not uncommon to have a broken clavicle or bruising across the, the rib cage or bruising at the pelvis. You know, when it's severe enough crash, Uh, Even though it's spread out, we still get broken bones and internal injuries and things of that nature. But um, it's better than um, being ejected. Being ejected, exactly. Or hitting the windshield with your head or all of these other bad things that could happen. So the other things that we're trying, the other objectives that we're trying to achieve uh, from a safety perspective is we want to as much as possible, protect the head, neck, spinal column, and the central nervous system. So that's why vehicles have head restraints. I know it's often called a headrest, but it's actually a head restraint. It's there to prevent the neck, the head and neck, from hyperextending to the rear of the vehicle. Now that's whether you get rear-ended from behind, or even the rebound phase of a frontal crash. And that's there to protect the the neck. You watch some of these uh, crash tests, these crash test dummies, and they don't have a dashboard or anything or or a headrest to stop their neck or their legs. And their (laughs) legs fly up and their neck goes way back. And It's It's very dramatic. (laughs) Glad I have those things. That's very true, very true. Um, And then there's something called ride-down. You want to take a stab at ride down? <laughs> She's looking at me like, no way, man. <laughs> ride down is um, everything. So even your seatbelt has some stretch in it to allow you to ride down the crash energy. So that means it's, um, the crash energy is fading over time instead of smack right then. Yep, it's spreading out the, that energy over time. Time and, and so the seatbelt is spreading it out over surface area and ride down is extending it out over time. And there's multiple things, uh, technologies built into the vehicle that are intended to help with ride down. It's the crumple zones in the front and back of the car. 
it's the stretch that Amy talked about in the seatbelt. And in a child's car seat harness, it's the stretch of the straps that are holding the seat, the, the child restraint in the car, whether that's the, the lower, the, the latch straps, which we'll talk about at a different time, or if you're using the seatbelt, you're still going to experience that stretch and give of the seatbelt. It's the cushion uh, absorbing energy over time. It's our bodies uh, absorbing energy as they move in the car. There's all these different things that are happening that are extending the deceleration over time. Uh, I think (laughs) one of the things uh, I often say is uh, it's not the fall that kills you if you fall off a building, right? It's the sudden stop at the end. So it's injuries caused by that instantaneous deceleration. So if we can extend that out, if we can extend that out over time, the injuries drop uh, very rapidly. Can we talk about number of points? No, go ahead. So another um, aspect of the restraining system is the number of points that it's restraining you at. So it's the strongest points of the body and the most number of them that we can get, which is why children's car seats have five-point harnesses. It's contacting five points of the body. It's also why as you transition children, they're losing points every time they transition. So they rear-facing, their actual whole back is in contact with the restraining um, with the restraint and then once you turn them forward facing it's the five point harness that's holding them in and then once they go to a, a booster seat or belt positioning um, it's three points and yeah and that's why you know when you look at race car drivers and race car harnesses it's going to be a multi-point uh, system which is Going again, going back to the principle of contacting the strongest points of the body and spreading that over the most surface area. So, to Amy's point, keeping our children rear facing as long as possible is giving them the best protection for the most common type of crash, which is that forward impact, because their entire head, neck, back, their whole central nervous system is supported by the shell of that car seat, uh, which is going to spread the crash energy over their whole you know back uh, surface area and the give that that seat the the ride down that that seat is going to offer is the best protection uh, for the occupant and the reality is is that if we all wanted to be as safe as possible our vehicles would be engineered to have everybody except the driver rear facing now, that would cause other challenges, and it's not something that the automotive industry or society has really ever been willing to accept, but from a pure crash dynamics perspective, that would be the optimum protection for all occupants. And it would be better if we all had five-point harnesses in our vehicle seats. Correct. But the uh, car manufacturers realize that people don't like seat belts. <laughs> better to use a three-point system and have it used every time than it is to have an optimum protection that is used less frequently. Right. It took (laughs) years and years for 
as many people as there are to use seatbelts, and it's still not 100%. And there are laws in every state now, and it's still not 100%. So it's a, it's a compromise to have the three-point system. Yep. And that we'll also have a whole uh, podcast where we talk about seatbelts and pregnancy. Uh, but the three-point system was never really built to be optimum protection for pregnant women and their babies. Um, but we'll, we'll dedicate a whole podcast to that. Or many. <laughs> or many, yes. Safety tip of the week. All right, our safety tip of the week is always buckle up. That should seem pretty obvious after what we've been talking about, right? Unfortunately, like I said, not everyone does. Um, I think it's around 90-some percent of adults don't buckle up and 90-some percent of children are not buckled up. Um, it's in my last blog article. I have presented somewhere. Um, Is that the fatalities? No, it's not fatalities. So of the people who die, of the children who die in car crashes, Roughly 33% is an average because it depends on the age. There's different percentages for different age groups. But an average of 33% are not restrained at all of the kids who die in car crashes. So the 90% is saying that? Oh, 90% um, are using their restraints. So there's roughly... Somewhere between 1 and 10%. <laughs> somewhere between 1 and 10% are not using their restraints. Did I say that backwards? I'm sorry. Um. And one in five parents admit that they do not always follow the rules when they're carpooling with children or their kids are carpooling with other adults. So we just want to remind you, always buckle up for every ride, no matter how fast you're going, no matter how far you're going, just buckle up. And then our parenting tip of this week is... This is interesting because you actually <laughs> kind of touched on it earlier. Is um, Our parenting tip this week is... To allow your children to experience natural consequences. Now that does not mean <laughs> car crashes. <laughs> car crashes. <laughs> Buckle them up anyway. Um, but it does mean that sometimes you learn best by experiencing what happens when you do something. Um, I'll so, let you think of an example for that and I'll, <laughs> I'll share one of my own. So I used to get really strange looks because I'd be at the playground and my kids would be um, climbing on it not the way it was intended and people would be looking at me like you're gonna actually let your kids do that and I'm like if they fall they'll learn and if they don't then they're learning that they can so either way they're learning something from this experience and instead of me trying to protect them and I think you know obviously uh, it's a continuous evaluation of risk um, you know, a risk assessment, you know, is, is, am I willing to live with the consequences of this going badly? <laughs> right. Right. I mean, uh, falling down off the top of the slide, much less, you know, the top of a six foot slide is a very different experience than the top of a 20 foot slide <laughs> <laughs> or a 50 foot water slide or, or not buckling up in the car. Very different, um, risk evaluation. Yes. But I think the, the, bottom line is it's the difference between um, learning consequential thinking, so experiencing the consequences, the natural outcome of a choice, as opposed to following a rule. And as parents, um, 
you know, and uh, it really, as a firefighter growing up, you know, coming out of that world, um, it became very apparent to me that um, there's only, you know, as a society, we can always try to be safer uh, and avoid injury, avoid risk. But at some point, we have to find the balance between accepting risk and evaluating the potential outcome of a choice. And as a child, you know, when we talked about parenting before we had kids, we wanted children who were good decision makers. And we decided that allowing our children to experience the consequences of their choices, the natural outflow of their choices. Um, I think the most common one is, you know, touching the hot stove. You can tell a child to not touch the hot stove a hundred times and they're still going to try to touch it. But if they touch it and they experience the discomfort, um, their nervous system, they now understand at a very experiential level what touching the hot stove means. I'll give another example too. Um, our teenage son is in online school and his <laughs> first year did not go so very pretty for him because he was not keeping up with his studies. He got really far behind. I think at one point he was like two months behind in his uh, work. So he had, um, at the end of the semester, he had about two weeks to catch up. He spent a lot of time he, he doing schoolwork those two weeks. Two months weeks. of work and two weeks. <laughs> uh, he managed it and he kind of learned his lesson because he kind of did it again, just not as bad the next semester. But uh, his teacher was a little bit surprised that I allowed him to do that. And I said, I could tell him all day long to do his schoolwork and he might and he might not. But if he experiences either failing and having to do it again or having to catch up like he is, then hopefully he'll learn his lesson for next time. And, you know, because he has uh, very high long range aspirations, we were able to use that as leverage saying, you know, if you fail a grade in school, it could have long-term consequences uh, for your life's ambitions. Um, and he was able to, you know, obviously at that time he was in eighth grade, so it didn't have a big impact, but the message got across. So the parenting tip is um, challenge yourself because really it, it, it challenges us as parents to allow our children to experience the consequences of the choices that they make and to create that space, even if it creates discomfort in us, um, in watching them experience something that's maybe painful, maybe dis uncomfortable for them, um, is a challenge for us as parents, but it's for their own good. It's for their long-term growth as opposed to immediate avoidance of suffering or pain. <laughs> yep. And obviously, risk assessment is critical. We're not advocating putting our children in harm's way, but maybe allowing them to experience a little discomfort. <laughs> Have a little adventure and see what happens. All right, thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next time on Where the Rubber Meets the Road. <laughs>